Now the serpent was more cunning than any any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Um, yeah. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes, and the, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And this is from Second Samuel, chapter eleven, verses one to five. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And then this is John chapter 18, verses 10 to 26. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one, one, one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since, since, that, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was, was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you go into the garden with him? Yeah, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this amazing day, Lord. Thank you for these beautiful people. Lord, I thank you for the love you have for us and for your desire to, to
to teach us in this time, oh God. I pray that you open our hearts to you and to your word. Lord, that if there's anything that maybe we, we disagree upon or anything that we would surrender and actually agree with what your word says. Lord, I just just thank you that you're here. I thank you that you know, your word says when two or more are gathered in your name, you are here amongst us, Lord. You're, you're right here. And Lord, you know what each of us need to hear today. So I pray that you would speak. That you wouldn't just be here, but you would really, every every person here would encounter you so deeply today, Lord. Speak to us and, Lord, fill Pastor Anthony. Well, may, may your Holy Spirit come upon him, Lord, to do what only you can do. That it would be all you, Lord Jesus, that you would really, really minister to us. Lord, grow us to be more like you, Jesus, and, and maybe walk out of here people more like you and less like the person we came in. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Wow. That was beautiful. You know, if you know Jaden, you'd know how surprising it is. He starts to read and he becomes so animated. And you're like, wow. It's like you get those dramatized Bible versions. Jaden needs to read those. Do you remember when you were first saved? Do you remember when it was that, there was that time where... You were like, I'm never going to sin again. I'm never going to do anything wrong. I'm just going to please God. Remember those days? And you were just like, the world was this gigantic horizon and everything just seemed so big and so right in front of you. And it was such a cool thing. And then somewhere down the line, you did it. You, you, you stared at yourself and you loathed yourself and you were disappointed and you were frustrated and you were like, ah, how could I do this? I call myself a Christian. I'm sinning. This can't possibly be happening. Remember those days? And inside it bothered you. There was something inside of you that churned at the thought. Then you do it again. And then you do it again. And you do it again. And then you start reading verses like, We're more than conquerors in Christ. And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And all of a sudden you start thinking like the Bible was written for people other than you. And what we have before us, and this is why though we continue to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John, I can't, in prayer this week as we're walking through the text, I can't help but look at this and realize how this is a common theme throughout all of Scripture. But this is where I started. And you're welcome to go on this journey with me through this text. How indifferent am I to falling? How immune... Am I to thinking about the consequences of falling? How apathetic am I to hurting the heart of God? Do you think I'd just go crazy if I really considered what it would be like? Well, if I am apathetic and consider myself immune and I'm indifferent, well, then this message would be no good to you, especially if I'm ambivalent to grieving the heart of God. But if there's even a hint of horror inside of you like there is to me, then in me, then listen up, please. Because I don't have any intention for us to sit here comfortably numb for the next hour and ignore the fact that we could be destined for spiritual ruin in all of this. What's been read before us is the three most, if we will, the most famous biblical falls. The garden, if you think about it, with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The original sin. The imperial sin of David in 2 Samuel 11 in the palace. And then oddly enough, in Peter's case, we have the garden and the palace. This fall is so profound, Peter's fall, that is, this denial, that though there be in general, do you realize only 11 major events that take place in all four of the, script, all four of the Gospels, this is recorded in all of them. I think that that's kind of noteworthy. And I just want you to know, I mean, for the, for the next bit here, the whole point of it is, is that I don't want to ever fall like this. I don't want you to fall like this. I don't want you to ever find yourself in that place where you're like, oh, if I had to listen to instruction, as Proverbs says. That place where you knew, well, where the boundless sky and horizon become very small and gray because now you feel like you're broken and filthy. Remember when convictions weren't an issue? 
when it wasn't just whether or not you could do this, whether it was available or whether it was forgivable, but where it was, whether it pleased God. The who in these things, it's important to note that these were not unusually weak people. They were favored, privileged people. Genesis 2 tells us this is the original man. He walked with God. He walked with God. God formed him out of his own hands. Everything else, the word, by the way, yarad, the idea of something where God just spoke it and it came to be made something out of nothing. But God uniquely says, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man in essence in our shadow in a way that if you could look at man, you could just see to something distinctly about man, that you can learn something distinct about God. And that was the guy we're talking about. And then in 1 Samuel 13 through 15, what we learn is that this second guy, this king, was a man after God's own heart. That's how God identified him. What made him so amazing was what he was after. And then we have Peter, the one guy that Jesus gives an ardent name change the first time he appears to meet him and says, I'm going to call you the rock. And I think these are the three guys God's pointing out to us. Not somebody that already seems to be riddled with problems and weaknesses, but these three guys... Romans 15.4 tells us that whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and the comfort of scriptures might have hope. And that's my hope for you today and for me. I never want to share anything with you that I wouldn't actually be taken to the woodshed and not be affected by. Because otherwise it's just empty preaching with the hope somehow that it'll land upon you guys, but it can't go around me or to me. It needs to go through me because I don't want this. I don't want it to be recorded anywhere of any of you. And I can tell you situation after situation of men that were, in essence, for me, spiritual giants. They were godly men. They were inspirations to me that I would have thought that guy that would sit down with me, stare me in the face and say, I fell. And I understand how Paul would say in Second Timothy at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord has reserved for me, but not only me, but for all those who have loved His appearing. And it's like seems weird to me that Paul didn't say, all right, I planted a bunch of churches or I saw a bunch of people saved or man, the ministries we launched. By the time Paul is about to get his head lopped off in roughly 62 AD, or I should say 67 AD, by that point, Paul is actually looking and he's just kind of actually really amazed that he's just finished the race. He's seen these really amazing people that were super gifted and super brilliant and super charismatic, expialidocious, and they were super everything. And they waved the coat and people fell over and they prophesied and they raised people from the dead and they did all these crazy things. But then the end of it all, see them walk away and become cops and teachers and insurance salesmen. And somewhere down the line, after all of these people start dropping... you start to go, how am I still standing? And I can see how Paul, at the end of his life, who, by the way, is roughly the age of the time, in other words, in 67, 80, he's 67 years old. And he looks and goes, ah, oh, all right, man. I'm like, it's almost as if Paul were happy to get his head lopped off because he knows that it's like, hey, we finished. Look at, I'm, I, I died clinging to Jesus, and that's a great place to go. So I want to point it out as the where and the how. And I want to fall-proof us. The problem is, again, if it really doesn't bother us to hurt the heart of God, this will be information we'll idealistically agree with. But then we'll really suck at execution, and I really don't want that for any of us. In the case of Genesis, and I want you to kind of consider this, so I'm going to just have a little bit of fun for a moment uh, because let's develop it. And I'm going to use Shamar. I mean, just some local guy here. He doesn't know it yet, so this is the benefit of it. Come on over here for a second, if you would, please. Okay. Just have a, go ahead and have a lay down for a second. Okay. So this is the benefit of being small, you know. So look at that. Oh, do, you, do you need one more, Shamar? Do you need somebody done? <laughs> There you go. Nice, nice job. 
You doing you doing well? Okay. Oh here, let me do this. Okay, here we go. Ready? Sure. There you go. Comfy? Now, I'd like you to consider the fact that in Genesis 2, it tells us, by the way, God's specifics about how he makes this man. Is where everything else he said, let there be, or literally, for instance, light be, and then it was. He just said, be, and it was, except for man, very distinctly so. What we read is that God did something different, and a new verb is introduced. It's a word that's used about shaping pottery. So in other words, God has to make his hands out of himself, and he shapes this guy. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get weird on you there. Shamar, this is why I'm doing it with you, because, you know, we're friends. This is cool, right? All right. Now, how can I ask you this is cool in front of everyone? What are you going to say? All right. So here we are. He shapes this guy, and then it says, and I'm not going to do this, but it says, then he actually still is in a living man. This is Genesis 2, 7. So you, well, like always, please never just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. So look at it with me. In Genesis 2, it tells us that God formed man out of the dust of the ground, of the dirt of the ground, the clay of the ground. But that's roughly seven, ver- seven words into the verse, but 22 words into that same verse, he becomes a living being. Something has to happen in between the point where he's called a man and where he's actually alive. It's important to note that. In between the two, God has to breathe life into him. Now, there are some who will really love to take this and run with it because they'd say, well, isn't it the word wind is the same word as spirit and uh, so forth. As a matter of fact, that would be true, ruach, except this actually isn't that word. This is a word for to blow. So literally, God blew into him the blow of life. Now, I'd like you to consider this from Adam's perspective. He blows life into the guy. So then your eyes open. Now, whether he was animated or anything like that, we really don't know. But at this particular moment, now he is alive. And as he blows life into him, for the first moment, you can sit up now because it's actually, and it's like, he has to start gathering all of this data. Everywhere he looks around, everything that he sees is the first time he's ever seen it. But the first thing that he actually sees is a God who blows life into him. And I'd like you to consider that. That the first thing we start to see is that this man here that begins with this is like my first bit of data stored into your operating system is whoever you are, you give life. That's a great place to start, isn't it? Could you imagine that was the first thing you knew? Is whoever you are, you give life. It isn't like I said, oh, by the way, my name is God. Nice to meet you. None of that, because it wasn't about names at this moment. It was about a relationship. And that relationship started with the life giver and the life taker. Does that make sense? Then look at the next verse. And God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Why is that important? Because if you've ever seen the cartoons or anything like that, what you notice is we always tend to think God made this beautiful, really lovely garden, and then he put man, and then he formed him there. But actually what it tells us is God made the man, and then he made the garden. That's an interesting thought. Now, and if you ever think that way, I could have risked it and said, which one came first? And I know, like Bruno, and there'd be others that pipe in and go, well, of course it was man. But we tend to think, if we close our eyes and see any of the cartoons, which is always weird, because, anyways, starting with naked people, and it's like, here's a kid's cartoon. But, you know, you get the idea. It's like, we always think, well, there's the garden. It's important to note the word Eden, chaden, means pleasure. This was God's idea of pleasure. God's idea of pleasure was not playing volleyball, you know, with puppies, that kind of thing. God's idea of pleasure was actually having a relationship with the person he created. Do you realize that in God's definition of, mer- of pleasure, you're actually the object of that? And it's a relationship? Not what God can experience physically from you, as the world has taken that word now to redefine, but having a relationship. There's a deeper form of pleasure, a more lasting and enduring form of pleasure that I have with my wife because of the relationship I've had with her than we could ever say in regards to physical aspects, and we don't get weird, but, but the idea of it is it's something that endures, and that pleasure is something that continues to endure and grow and get better. So I want you to consider the fact that the first thing this guy knows is, whoever you are, you gave life. The second thing is, wow, everything you make, it tells us that he made the trees grow out of the ground that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, imagine God's like... Wait right there. Ready? When he makes this tree grow, and he goes, what do you think? And you say, beautiful. Dove, dove, that's beautiful. God goes, I'm glad you like it. Now try it. Now imagine, he's never eaten anything. He's never stuck anything in his mouth. Does he even know he has taste buds? And imagine what it would be like the first time, and I'm a, kind of a fruit person. It comes with coming from California. But imagine he grabs a peach or whatever. What's your favorite fruit? Mango. Mango, perfect, because that grows on trees. 
that's good. I was hoping you were going to say, you know, something. Anyways, yeah, grapes, right? One of those things that's like we have to dig up. All right. So, mango, so you go and you take that thing, you peel it off a little bit, and maybe back before the fall, it didn't even have skin on it. You just stick your face right in, and it's dripping off the face, off your face, and now you're sticky and all of that. And God goes, what did you think? And you're like, that was amazing. Imagine the cramping in your mouth for the full moon. Your mouth's going, oh, this is so awesome. What a great place to start. And you realize, the first thing you start to realize is, wow, whoever you are, you not only give life, you make beautiful things. For me to enjoy. What if that was what it really meant to be a Christian? What if that was what it really looked like? You give life. And you make beautiful things for me to enjoy. Then he makes another tree grow. He goes, what do you think? And you're like, wow, it's beautiful too. And he goes, well, try that. How long before you get the routine? Third, fourth one. I can't wait for what God's going to make next. Now, my particular mind, the way that my mind works, it's like the third one tastes like Thai food. Fourth one tasted like Brazilian barbecue, but what do I know? I'm not here to upset a vegan. I already did that this morning at breakfast. Anyways, so, uh, so imagine that. So this is the routine. This is the routine between God and a man. Is he, God makes beautiful things. You explore them. You enjoy them. And God goes, well, okay, what do you think? Is that good? All right, let's put you to work. All right, what are you going to do? Well, you've just had on-the-job training. This is what it was like for him. Was all that Adam had to do, we read it as to tend and to keep it. Avadan Shamar. Shamar. That's his name, by the way. That's what God says. I want you to do two things. One, Avad, it literally means spend your energy. Spend your energy doing what? Well, what have we done so far? Imagine God's like, oh, come on over here. Come on over here. Ready? Let's take a look. We need, we need room for a new tree. Try this one. You know? And it's like, I can't think of a single fruit that I would go, oh, this is horrible. Right? Okay, well, come on over here. Come on over here. Let's make another one over here. All right, try this one. This is the relationship between God and man. And you realize in this, he goes, now, now, this is what I want you to do. Ready? I want you to get busy. I'm going to give you an appetite and I'm going to give you curiosity. And I want you to go in any direction and just go exploring. And I want you to try every tree because they're all beautiful and they're all good for food. Does this sound like a really horrible job so far? For me, I think this is epic. Y'all with me? Now, then he says, but I also need you to guard it. Shemar. Now, how do you guard it? Well, let me tell you. I'm gonna, there's one tree and it's in the middle. And I just don't want you to go near it. I don't, it literally just says don't eat it. Because on the day that you eat of it, mut to mut, literally you'll die to die. It's a double infinitive. And it means you'll die dying. Now, does he know what death is? This is a really important fact as a Christian between an evolutionary, a macro-evolutionary idea that the science teaches, you know, where everything just kind of, and God's creation idea. And the difference is, well, death is either good or bad. From an evolutionary perspective, that's a good thing. Because it just paves way for a new thing. But in God's perspective, death was never a good thing. So now there's a part of your head that goes, oh, we, sh- we really shouldn't eat that. Because whatever death is, it doesn't seem like a good idea. Go and have a seat. Thank you, Shamar. Now, the reason I say that is, I want you to recognize where Adam started this thing. And I want to be developing a model like this, but I want you to recognize... That when God said that, now here's the thing, why would God stick this, this tree in the middle of the garden? Well, it's kind of like this. If you're at the North Pole, whatever direction you go is south. And if it's in the middle, whatever direction you go is away from it. And, I, and if you consider the fact that God places within the heart of a man curiosity, the issue is, well, what's gonna, where is that curiosity going to go? But he created that so you could explore the wonders of God and enjoy what he makes. Every day that I walk with the Lord is this amazing experience of, of exploration and discovery. But the focus wasn't on me, it was on Him. So in Genesis 3.6, it tells us in regards to the first fall, the where was is that they were the one place they shouldn't be. And how do I know that? Because it tells us, by the way, that she took of the fruit and ate of the fruit. And you can't take it and, and eat of it unless you're there. She is speaking with a serpent who appears to be on the tree, and I want you to realize the one place you should not be was the one place 
that they were. And by the way, it does tell us in verse 6 that she took it and gave it to their husband who was with them, which means that by the time we have an Adam and an Eve, that they're both standing at the one place they shouldn't be. Now, this is important, and I want you to recognize this. A heart that is to be near sin is a heart to sin. And this is where we start this. When our youngest was quite a bit younger, my wife is a phenomenal baker. You would do yourself a favor to invite yourself to anything she's baking. We have a couple very gifted bakers in our fellowship. But it is important to note that when she makes cookies, the whole house smells like it. Both of our girls are really good at that. My wife makes cookies, the house smells like it. My daughter loves salmon. She cooks at the house smells like it. I prefer my wife's cooking in that sense. But I remember when Rue was, I don't know, roughly three, four years old, maybe five. Um, I just remember that she had made, my wife had made this plate of cookies and, and Rue did this classic thing that kids would do. She goes and stands next to and she goes, what's that? She actually knows what it is. Of course she does. So I'm like, it's actually a small animal and it's very dangerous when you might want to get away from it. She goes, no, 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 really. Well, what is that? And I'm like, you know what that is. Those are cookies. And she says, well, can I have one? I says, no, actually, it's like 20 minutes until dinner. This is not the time for, for cookies. She goes, okay. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I just want to smell them. I just want to smell them. I'm like, honey, a heart that's to be near sin is a heart to sin. She goes, no, 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 no. And then I see her reach like this. She's like, no, 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 I just want to feel how warm they are. I want to see how warm they are. And I'm like, yeah, they're warm. Phone rings, I answer the phone, I turn back. Her face is just covered, right? But she's no different than any of us. Is there some area that you just know you shouldn't be near, but you... You could just want to smell the cookie. You know what's interesting? Is that any direction away from that would have been okay. The world makes it sound like we're so confined. But I'd like you to consider the fact that we have everything but that tree. See, though it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they already had the knowledge of good. They just didn't have the knowledge of evil. The word evil is the word ra'a in Hebrew, and it literally means harm. It comes from the word harm. Because like, I don't want you to know harm firsthand. I don't want you to know scars. I don't want you to know that pain. I don't want you to know that regret, that self-loathing, that hatred that you have toward yourself when you look in the mirror and you say, loser, failure. God, because I don't want you to be, I don't want you to ever have to experience that. And I ask myself, would I avoid the glory of a new direction in the garden just to sit somewhere in the middle where the temptation is? Because let's just be honest. We live in a culture that's shoving us in the middle so we could sit down and shut up and be silent. In David's case, by the way, I'd like you to recognize in 2 Samuel 11, it tells us that it was the time when the kings go out to battle and David was actually in his palace. It tells us, by the way, it was evening. Evening, by the way, is late afternoon for us. And the easiest way to know that is if you know how to say hello in different languages. The question is, for instance, I don't, do you have a good afternoon, good evening in Hungarian? When do you start saying good evening? When it starts. Yeah, when the start, sun starts setting, it becomes evening. And that's kind of the point of it is that it tells us that David rose up from his bed in the, after, in, in the late, when the sun started setting. It seemed like a really strange time to be getting up, don't you think? Unless, of course, you binged on Netflix or something like that, then getting up isn't that weird about that time. But understand, it tells us it started that whole chapter, and he, this was kind of a weird thought, but it was like Ammon had been battling, and it was kind of a weird situation that the king had actually been sort of a friend of David's, and the king died, even though it really kind of seemed like he wasn't. But just the same, David, in essence, sends a flower basket in a group of people. they really sorry to hear about your dad now that he's dead. And the, the, the new prince that's now become king, you know, recognizes <clears throat> this is a prime time to attack. And it's important to note that in your own life, anytime there's a regime change, it is always the time for the enemy to try to attack. And that is because the kingdom is at its weakest, would be the idea. So David's actually just trying to be kind. So he sends a group of guys and in essence a gift. And he's like, hey, this is our condolences. But the, the counselors of the new king, Hanan, he actually says, oh, this guy's actually spying out the land. This guy's going to attack. So instead of them going and saying, you know what, no thanks, they shave off half their beards and 
cut off their clothes at the buttocks, that's what it says, and send them back. So now all of a sudden these guys are running back with halter tops and half, you know, and looking like something out of Camden. And, and they kind of, kind of pop back in this thing. And David now is furious. David is furious because he's, his people have been, his peeps have been humiliated. So David's going to go and fight. So they fight. And what happens is then the winter happens. And it's like, it's, it's like this weird thing. So it's like they're killing each other. And then the winter comes and goes, all right, all right, let's take a break. When spring comes back, we'll fight again. Have a good, Merry Christmas. You know, and then off they go. And, and it's like, so, so this winter happens and it's kind of, it's rainy and people don't, I don't know, they want to fight in the rain. And then somewhere, and then the spring comes and now it's time to fight again. And now the spring, and in other words, I'll, I'll most likely kill you in April. And, and that's kind of the idea. So now it comes, the spring has come, it's time to fight and David sends everyone but himself and it says, this is the time when kings fight. That's what God tells us. But now he says, David stayed at his house. He stayed at his palace. And as he stayed at his palace, he's been laying on his bed going, what do I do now? And then he gets up, it's the sun is starting to set, and he gets up from his bed, and as he gets up from his bed, there's a girl bathing. He was definitely not where he should have been. Here's the ironic thing, beloved, is that the battlefield of the Lord will always be the safest place for you, not the couches of our comfort, and there is the danger is that for every one of us, please understand that sometimes we have this tendency to go towards the familiar instead of explore like God called us to, and that puts us in danger. We just tend to reside to the comfort versus the challenges of our spiritual walk walking forward. And when that happens, we're sitting ducks for this. And I start to ask myself that question then, well then, well, where am I with all of this? Would I avoid the challenges of the battle, assuming them greater danger than the temptations in my palace? I mean, if I'm in my house alone and the internet's there, you know, what's that going to do for me? Or if I'm going to be in this situation where nobody else is looking what am I going to do there and you realize this is a situation we deal with often with guys and girls because all of a sudden it was like I know that I should have been out and I know this is where I belong but I'm really I just kind of eased up but here's the weird one with Peter in Peter's situation as we compare the three he was in the right place it tells us in Luke twenty two thirty nine that Jesus came out he went to the Mount of Olives did that arduous walk down the brook Kidron and walked up the other side now to the Mount of Olives. And he had gone to a place in Gethsemane where he actually had often gone. He's making himself a sitting duck so it'll be easy for Judas to find him and arrest him. And he turns to his boys, specifically three of them, and he says, all right, guys, I need you to watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Now, the question is, what kind of temptation would they fall into? The temptation of lusting, the temptation of greed, probably not at that moment. But Jesus also realizes something happens when we actually stop watching and praying. And that is that we are prone to impulse. And I don't know how many of you are like this. I'm an impulse person and I recognize that, so I have to keep a tab on that. This is why it's a dangerous, especially because I was raised poor, the... Uh, when I go, like, street fairs are a danger to me. My wife can tell you. It's like, if I'm like, oh my goodness, that's an Armani or an Armami or an Arlami shirt. Oh, but it's a pound. Oh, I don't know if that's my size, but it would look good on me if it was. And, you know, my poor wife, she's like, you came back with a bag of shirts again? How many shirts could you possibly wear? Impulse is a dangerous thing. No, that's not everyone, but it is for me. But I'll be honest. I'd rather do that than the impulse of some form of great fall because often people are like, I don't know, it was just in front of me and I got blindsided. Well, you were inching towards it and this is the danger. You were already in that property. But I recognize in Peter's case, he was exactly where Jesus told him to be. And I ask myself in this, would I assume just because I'm in church or I'm in the right studies or whatever that I'm actually free from falling just because I'm in the right place? Well, where am I with God? Where's my hood now? Where do I find myself by choice the most? Now, the what. In Genesis' situation, Adam had a clear directive from God to enjoy the wonders of the garden. And the moment I stop exploring God's awesomeness, I'm going to find myself in trouble. And the problem is the world will always advertise with ferocious appetite to ping my curiosity. Did you notice that? You're like, it's kind of like in your head at all moments, everything you look at, there's a part of your brain that goes swipe left, swipe right, swipe left. It's like no matter what it is, there's always some form of temptation, there's always some form of challenge in all of this, and it goes, aren't you curious? 
Every Thursday now for nearly eight years, I go and I volunteer, as does Daniel, uh, at a rehab house where some of these men have been addicts for 30 plus years. They've literally come right out of the dumpster. And you ask him, how does a man stick a needle in his arm for the first time and go, heroin? I know this is going to totally addict me. I know this is going to ruin my family. It's going to ruin my future. It's going to ruin everything. Do you know what it is? The answer is always the same. Curiosity. I don't know. I just never experienced it before. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, let's give it a... Come on. I've, at least I'd be able to say I've tried it. Curiosity, as you're aware of, is an endless appetite that never gets fully met. This is why internet porn works so well. Because there's always a new face, there's always a new thing, and that's the part of the problem. This is why any form of dangerous liaison becomes that, because it's never fulfilling. This is why greed never finds an end. You can never have enough stuff, you can never be powerful enough, you never can be famous enough, you never be influential enough. You can never get to that point and go, oh, I'm there now. Because even, you know, it's like you ever, you ever have to climb a hill and you just like, I'm, I'm sure that this is the top, and then you get to that and you realize this isn't the top and there's more to climb up? Am I the only one who's ever had that experience? You're like, by this point, you know, I mean, we were in places like Nepal, you know, and hills there are actually called, I don't know, mountains. But, you know, you get to this point, and it's like snow starts falling and things get weirder and they get colder and you go like, well, this is clearly the top. And they're like, this isn't even a vantage point. And you're like, are you kidding me? And the reason I say that is this is life when you're trying to fulfill things that way. This is what happens is you, you're like, oh, if I could just get that job now and I could just get that person now and I could just, oh, well, okay, so now I'm married. Well, uh, wait a minute, how come this isn't exactly what I thought? Or wait a minute, well, we should have a couple of kids. They could serve us. That'll do it. Or you know what? Well, now I need to get, and it's like, this goes on and you just get to that top and you're like, no, this isn't the top. And the reason I say that is in Adam's case, there's always going to be somebody advertising. Aren't you curious? But I want to remind you, God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And he created you. There is no appetite you have that is sinful. It's just what menu you order from. God's like, I gave you that curiosity because I want you to know me. You're like, but it's hard work reading the Bible. God's like, well, then try not to then don't try to memorize the whole thing this morning. You know, start with something, but start to know me better. Walk with me, pray with me, walk with other people who love me. Be in a fellowship where you can be open and available to being used. Unfortunately, in Adam's case, he was not only where he shouldn't be, but he was in that place where he stopped exploring to get there. And the moment you stop exploring the goodness of God, you'll be drawn to the center. In David's case, of course, it's actually even clearer in that sense because it says this was the time when the kings go to battle and David wasn't fighting. Well, actually, David had a war outside that he was supposed to fight and instead he wound up losing a battle inside. Did you notice that? But it's so much easier to send someone else. It's so much quieter in your own house. Is you know, a little calming down, a little folding of the hands. A little sending down to rest and poverty comes upon you like a prowler, like an armed man. And you realize that time without purpose is a very short trail to temptation. Have you noticed that? Like, I've got a little bit of time. I'm just going to sit around and do nothing. Oh, nothing always becomes something not good. I say, God, please interrupt my nothing because I don't want my nothing to become a bad thing. But this was the case with Peter. In Peter's case, he was not only in the garden, but he should have been watching. David should have been watching. Of course, if he were in the battlefield, you'd definitely be watching because arrows come at you, bullets come flying is kind of the idea. In those days, they were called arrows and javelins. But in the same idea, and that is, things are being flung at you. Here's the part that when you're out in the battlefield with the Lord, you expect things to get flung at you. But when you're in your house by yourself, you just assume you, they won't. And so you put your guard down and then you get drilled. I've learned the difference between playing a sport, for instance, in life is that in a sport you only get tackled when you're off the bench. But in life you'll get tackled in every spot. And you're like, I don't get it. I was doing nothing. And God's like, yeah, but you should have been watching. And there's an endless supply of distractions, amusements, brain numbers, isn't there? 
And the world's telling you, slow down, chill out. Don't go overboard with this Jesus thing. Come on now. You know, that's pretty radical. And we know what radical religious people look like. They blow themselves up. They kill other people. I'm like, yeah, that's because they're trying to actually follow the role model. That guy did the same. But what about mine? Mine raised the dead. Mine healed the sick. Mine transformed lives, died on a cross and saved the universe. I really want to be like him. But could you imagine Jesus going, you know, you guys, I would die on the cross naked in front of all of you guys, but, you know, that'd be kind of overboard. So I think I'm just going to teach a little bit, heal a little bit, and then just kind of send. Is that cool with you guys? Could you imagine? You No, no, actually, would you please go, please go overboard? And I want to warn you, all three of them were warned. Remember, God said, I want to warn you, I want you to, I want you to guard this place, Shemar. Because on the day you eat of this, you'll die. And you're like, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Tony. He did eat of it, and he lived like 900 and some odd years. The guy lives almost 1,000 years, 981 years. How in the world does that say death? Apparently, God's vision of death is different than ours. See, what happened on that day? They ate of the fruit, they hid themselves from God, and they lost their intimacy. Isn't that why we hate death? I mean, isn't it when you know you have somebody you love and you sit there and you look at the shell they once possessed, the tent they once walked in, the jersey they once carried, but they're not there anymore. You have no relationship with this anymore. You recognize the face. You look at the shell. But it isn't like you can talk and it'll talk back. It isn't like you can make plans and they'll fulfill them. You lost your intimacy with them. See, that physical death we watch and we experience only reminds us what God experienced with Adam and Eve the moment they took of that. God's like, that's the whole point of this. God doesn't want that for you. He didn't create you so you can walk around and selfishly dive into things and kind of walk around and live life without Him because that was not His intent. What God really wanted was to have a relationship with you from the beginning where your mind would be blown because God makes beautiful things. And can I just warn you, God made you. And He would really love for you to go walking with Him to show you the next cool thing. But it might be unfamiliar. It might be a new side of the garden, but it won't be in the middle. I can guarantee you that. And the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die, Adam. In David's case, you'll say, well, where's David's warning? Second Samuel eleven three. David inquired about the woman. Hey, hey, who that? Which has to be really interesting or weird because she's assumedly still bathing. And he's like, hey, who that? Right? And, and okay, they say there's three answers they give. First of all, like, I know who that is, which is kind of, anyways, I don't want to develop. Her name is Batsheva. Bat means daughter. Shiva means covenant. That should be strike one. Daughter of a covenant, David. You really want to have to go after a girl named daughter of a covenant? But let me tell you another thing about her. She's the daughter of Eliam. Big deal, you say? Well, Eliam happens to be the son of a guy named Ahithophel. Unless you're fairly well endowed, you would know that's David's closest counselor. So that happens to be not only daughter of a covenant, strike one, but she happens to be the granddaughter of your closest counselor. You know the guy that gives you advice when you're making life decisions? You really want to sleep with this guy's granddaughter? Strike two. But just if that weren't bad enough, he goes, oh, let me tell you one more thing. She also happens to be the wife of your bodyguard. Who wants that? I don't care how fine she is. But the one guy that actually could, that's trained to kill and has a key to your bedroom to walk in anytime you're sleeping, you want to sleep with that guy's wife? That sounds like a pretty ample warning to me. But David goes, no, 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 I want her. In the case with Peter, Jesus says, look, I need you to, wa- I need you to watch and pray because I don't want you falling into temptation. This isn't time to be careless and casual with your walk with me. Because the world around you right now is not in a pretty place. And it needs to be impacted, not imitated. And I need you to be different. I need you to be aware that every step you take is a potential fall if you're not careful. Now that's not to make you paranoid. It's just to make you careful. And when they do fall asleep, Jesus actually wakes them up and says, Hey, 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 didn't I warn you? Can I say maybe that's this moment right now? We've been numbing, we've been dozing, we've been nodding off, and all of a sudden Jesus looks and he goes, I need to wake you guys up right now 
because and this is this is not what you want. So finally the how on this and I'll focus on Peter. Turn to that John 18 text, would you? And as you do, I'm going to give you a couple precursors up to this because this is how I want us all to be aware of and take the warning. It started, by the way, back in Matthew 26. And though I want you at John 18, though you can mark this down, John 26, 33, because Jesus actually tells them, you're all going to fall tonight. You're all going to bail on me. And the reason Jesus says this, he goes, you know, I've been reading my Bibles, and as I've been reading my Bibles, it says you're all going to, it says strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. So I know that you're all going to bail on me. So I, I recognize that. And Peter pipes up. And what Peter says is, even if all will be made to stumble, I will never be made to stumble. I will never forsake you. I am willing to die for you, Jesus. And I genuinely believe, at least is my opinion, that he really believed that. He wasn't lying. Well, he was, but he just didn't know it. And this is how his fall starts. It starts with an unrealistic, unhealthy focus on me. Now, that could be I get offended. That could be I'm scorekeeping and I'm looking, going, you know, I do all this and that person's not, my partner's not doing that, or oh man, this, and you just, but somewhere down the line you either feel super entitled or you feel super like you've got all these rights that have been transgressed, or maybe you just feel like you're super horrible. But somewhere in all of that, you get this unrealistic view of yourself because you focus on yourself, and the enemy loves you to start there. But then Peter has this grand overestimation of his own strengths. And I watch this. It's like, oh, no, no, man, I'm cool. This will never happen to me. Come on, man, I've got this thing. I haven't had this struggle in a long time. This thing's so nailed. Look, at in the end of it all, if you really think this thing has the power at any time in your life to try to take you down, why in the world would you want to go near it? The bottom line, like, yeah, that dog, it bit me before. I, I, you know, and rabies shots were not pleasant. They were a very unpleasant experience all the way through the stomach and all that stuff. It was really good. But in the end of it, well, now it's like tame. And, you know, let me just warn you, your flesh nature, my flesh nature will never convert. That's why he tells us that we're supposed to reckon it dead. So you start trying to wake that up, it's never going to be good. And so he's like, you know, no, 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 I'm cool. I, look at, oh, of course I'd expect him to fall. Of course I'd, oh, I mean, look at John. I mean, that guy's got a temper. Have you seen John and James? They're like trying to call fire down on people. Clearly, they're going to, I'm clear they're going to bail on you guys tonight, but Jesus, I'm the rock. Remember Rocky? Yo, you got me. You can see Jesus going, that's a great comfort, Peter. Thank you very much. And I want you to realize that the moment your vision gets about you first, you've already hopped in the vehicle. You've hopped in the shuttle that's going to take you down and you've got to jump it. In Luke 22, 45, Jesus rose up from prayer and he says, look at why, why are you sleeping? You guys, I told you not to. I need you to watch. And this is what happens next as I ease up. I stop watching. I stop being careful and I become watchless. In David's case, he stopped watching and he started looking. And the less that I watch, the more prone I am to impulse. The less that I watch, the more prone I am to listen to Satan's lies, like in Adam and Eve's case. And I ask myself, how careful am I right now? Do you remember when there were certain songs you listened to that made you angry when you were first saved? Certain things you watched and you were like, I can't believe anybody does this. It still bothers me, by the way, when someone uses my Lord's name in vain. I don't see anybody saying Buddha or Muhammad out there like that. But it's like amazing. Someone gets angry. And it's like, I mean, I, and it was so great in Israel because nobody uses the Lord's name in vain that I've noticed at least while we were there. But the moment I was in the airport at Heathrow and the guys were like, oh, and I just had to say, do you know him? And the guy's like, stupid American. And I'm like, well, why are you mentioning somebody you don't know? And the guy's like, and I'm like, and, I, and the whole point is, like, it, it, it bothers me. Because you're going to, actually, you're going to confess his name and you're going to confess he's Lord. It would be really wise for you to do it now. It says, every knee will bow, beat the rush, do it now. This would be a good time. And I realized, remember when that was like, okay, wait a minute, I, I really don't want to watch that. I don't, I really, I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. And it's like, remember that? 
Now, I'm not here to freak you out. I'm here to actually say, remember when you were watchful because you didn't want to fall and that was a big deal? And now some of those things that really bothered us and nauseated us now are kind of part of our repertoire. And I realize, am I really that careful about what influences me? How about the people that influence me? The people that I look around and go, you know what? You know, and you, you, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but when we hang out, man, it is never going to Jesus. It's like, you know, when we hang out somehow in this, I'm, I'm more likely to wind up in jail than I'm in the arms of God through this experience. And I realize, what in the world am I thinking? But we also know those times when somebody's in ministry, but there's a difference. You know, look at my kids, well, one of the first things we taught them is that everyone you meet is an acquaintance. You're acquainted with them. You, you know they exist, but they graduate to friend because a friend has the power of influence in your life. So you can choose that. Know that. You can choose that. So who are you going to let influence you? My challenge is pick people that you'd like to be more like. That you're like, I admire that aspect and I'm willing to listen. Because if those are the people, I mean, let's face it, if you were going to be an Olympic anything, and you're like, you know, it's like, imagine Bruno, or let's just say, you know, roughly Bruno, wants to be a professional football player and he really wants that, but he's like, you know, but all of his friends are fat, lazy slobs and all they want to do is sort of sit around and, you know, and eat Jaffa cakes and yell at the television screen. And, and I was like, you know, that he's like, I'm going to go work out. And they're like, why are you working out again? Oh, come on, come here and watch it. I was like, sooner or later, you realize everything he wants to do to actually be Olympic is actually going to be contrary to everything that his friends want. Is that what you really want? I want to be an Olympic Christian. I actually, I want to go beyond that. I'd like to be a gold medal Christian. I'd like to be one that's like, man, I spent it on the field. And I don't, and it's like, look, at, I want everyone to be my ministry but I really I want people to challenge me. And I'm like, wow. You see that guy pray? Or you, I mean, not like for show, but you know, or that guy's always sharing or whatever. It's like, man, do you know anyone that inspires you like that? Can you think of three people off the top of your head that you're like, their walk challenges me to have a better walk? How close are you to them? Verse, verse 10, and again, now I better start wrapping this up. We've got a few minutes left. Peter, he drew a sword because he's been sleeping and he's given over to impulse and he throws it and he thrusts off the right ear of Malchus, the high servant priest, uh, high servant of the priest. And it's like, look it, I, stopped, I, I start by overestimating my strength and I focus on me, then I doze off and get careless and then I act on impulse. It's the fruit, it's the woman, it's the sword. But in all the cases, I've just barked out an impulse. And I've gone, wow, how did I do that? Oh my goodness, I just whacked off a guy's ear. Oh my goodness, what's this in my hand that I've just eaten? Oh my goodness, how are you in my bed? And that is what happened here. And it remained, by the way, through the situation. And I wondered what it would be like if Peter had gone, Jesus, wait a minute, I'm so sorry. Because Jesus rebukes him. He's like, put that sword away. Put it back in its sheath. And then he has to heal the guy's ear. You know, I can imagine Jesus going, I'm really, really sorry for this guy. He's going to be a pope. But right now, I mean, imagine what that would be like. And then you realize, wow, my attitude's very different from Jesus's. You realize the rest of all of this, this denial, isn't Peter's fall. It's the fallout from his fall. His fall was already in the garden. The moment he jumped up, grabbed his sword, and tried to save Jesus, who was going to the cross to save him, Imagine if Peter had succeeded. Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. We would have all gone to hell. Story over. I mean, imagine Jesus like, Peter, you have no idea the short, limited, I mean, I love the heart behind it, but you have no idea the short-sightedness to what you're trying to do here. But you act on impulse. Mark 26, 58, I'm sorry, Mark 14, 54, there's no Mark 26, Matthew 26, 58, tells us that Peter then follows at a distance. And this is what happens. Once I blow it like that, I start to distance myself from fellowship, from people that I know, that I just feel like will look at me and go, oh, you did, like, you know, they just, they see it. It's like you wear the scarlet letter on your face. And so what happens is, I overestimate myself, focusing on myself, and then I act on impulse. And then I start distancing myself. The last couple of things here. I can't distance myself from God without drawing closer to the camp of the enemy. You're aware of that, right? I cannot distance myself from God and not draw close to the camp of the enemy, but vice versa. I can't draw near to God without distancing myself from the camp of the enemy. 
Simon Peter followed Jesus, verse 15, so did the other disciple, the disciples known to the high priest. That's how Peter gets in. Peter actually couldn't even get in the door except John, assumedly the writer, the one guy who actually knew that the high priest's servant's name was Malchus. That tends to lead me to believe he actually kind of had some relationship with the high priest. Who else knows the high priest's servant's name? And somewhere in all that, John has to go to the door and he's like, hey, I'm sorry, this guy's with me. And I wonder, you ever wonder where is John in all of this? It's like John never seems to have denied that he was a disciple of Jesus. John never, I mean, whatever happened? Did he get, did he get abused at all through all of this? But somewhere in it, he's like, oh, I'm really sorry, sorry. But this guy's with me. So he comes in, but somewhere in all of it, Peter doesn't seem to be staying with John. Instead, Peter distances himself from John. And he starts to go and he goes to warm himself by a fire. And the farther that I run, from Jesus, the deeper all run into the enemy's camp, and he's found himself now in a crowd that is hostile to a Jesus follower, and that would intimidate him, but the problem is he actually volunteered to be a part of the crowd. You know why? Because there was a fire there. Now, please hear me, because we are now just at the end of this. Understand, somewhere in all of this, Peter is, you know, he stopped watching, you know, he, though he was in the right place in the beginning, he stopped watching, and he got careless, he overestimated his own strength, and he acted on impulse, and he's like, whoa, I better start distancing myself, because I know John, John's going to go... See, look at, remember that you were willing to die for him stuff? You know, you, you, you feel like that, right? You're going to walk into church because you've blown it and someone's going to go, oh, here comes that sinner. And then you kind of come into this situation, and, but you know what you do? You're like, oh, that's, that church is full of hypocrites, man. I don't want to go there. Oh, they're all hypocrites. You know, I'm going to go to a club because after all, clubs don't have hypocrites. Have you ever seen the makeup people wear? You know, hypocrite means to wear a mask, right? Like I bartended for many years, and I can tell you, man, the moment they say, well, we just want to warn you, we're going to turn on those lights so we can clean the place, it's amazing how it's like, pfft, everyone scatters for the door. And you know why? Because when those lights go on, you actually see what people really look like. And they're like, yeah, I, really, I look really good in this light. There's like very little light. Yeah, that's the point. So look at you say the church is full of hypocrites. Yes, and you know what? There's always room for one more. You're welcome to come. But it would be saying, I don't want to go to the hospital. It's full of sick people. Yeah, but you're sick. And that it also has doctors. And that's a good thing. So Peter has now walked into a group of guys that are going to diss him for following Jesus. And he walked over there because there was a fire and it was cold. April's single digits at night. And he's there at this point, Celsius, and he's kind of looking at this, and he's just, he just wants to be warm. But understand what he's done here, and we're with this. Peter's found himself in a crowd that's hostile to a, to a Jesus follower and intimidates him, but he volunteered to do so, and now he's not only standing with them, but he's partaking with them. Look at verse 18. Now the servants and the officers who had made a coal of fire there, coals of fire there, it was cold, and he warmed himself, but Peter stood with them, and he warmed himself. So they ask, hey, are you one of those guys? It's like, no. I don't know what you're talking about. And then the relative of the Malchus, she's like, you whacked off my cousin's ear. I never forget a face, and especially I never forget the face of somebody who cuts the ear off of a relative. You know, that is kind of a very fundamental moment. In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, 26, 74, 14, 71, he says he began to curse and swear. Understand what Peter's saying. He's saying, if I know this guy, may I go to hell? You get to the point where you pretend like you've never even met him. You've never said yes. In fact, we act like we were never saved. Because the crowd around us is not is going to be anything but happy about that. Is this really what I wanted my life to be? Because your life's a trajectory. It's not a stance and it's not a waltz. It's a trajectory. And I plot the course with every choice I make. And yet Jesus knew that Peter was going to fall. Because in John thirteen thirty eight, he said, Look at Satan. Will you lay down your life for me? Surely I say to you that before the rooster won't crow before you've actually denied me thrice. And yet he still had a plan in that. In Luke twenty two thirty one, he said, Simon, Satan has asked for you. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he would sift you like wheat but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail and when you return to me strengthen the brothers now look at this is how we close this let me ask you where are you at today are you in that place where you're actually there where you realize you know what I remember what it was like to really love God what it was really like to just be like yes the name of Jesus merit skip a beat and then you hung your heart because you walked through Babylon and you're like, this sucks. Look at this. Nobody's happy about it. And you know what really is scary? 
is that a lot of the church won't either. Have you noticed that? I mean, I'm not talking about spiritual experience where it's like, you know, dude, I just laid hands on someone and they were healed. You know, you could, you, if you said that in the general unsaved world, they might be like, well, that was pretty cool. It's interesting. But you're like, I really decided I want to follow Jesus with everything. And, and you know what? I've decided I want to live a sober and safe and sex-free life till I'm married. And, and it's, like, it's like these kind of things that people go, whoa, 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 whoa. That is, that, okay, now you're actually talking like a crazy person. And you can get that advice from a lot of people in the church, prayerfully not here. And I'm here to tell you, I challenge you to OD on Jesus. You can't. Prove me wrong. Dive into him with your head and your heart first. And tell him, and, prove, and show me how that's ruined your life. There is nothing you can hand over to Jesus that will not improve. And if it dies there, then that's an improvement. If I handed in my cancer and it died there, that would be a very big improvement. But I don't want you falling and I don't want me falling. So let me say, let me reverse that so we can pray. First of all, find yourself in the right place doing the right thing. And be careful. How's that? Put yourself in a place where people will challenge you to walk. Challenge you when it comes to those areas of sacrifice that in your heart God has placed upon you and you know saying it, some people are going to look at you like you're absolutely mental and you're like, but you know what? I know this is right. I'm walking out of this relationship. I'm leaving this situation. I'm going to do this instead or whatever. And you're like, but you know what? Is there anyone at all confirms the stuff that God's Holy Spirit is saying to your heart? Because don't you need that? And you're like, well, forget it. If I'm going to get this kind of talk, I might as well go someplace and do something stupid. Well, I'm going to say, don't do anything stupid. Follow Jesus with me. Let's challenge each other. When we're kind of jogging, but we know that we could sprint, then let's sprint. When we feel like we've tripped, let's help each other get up and let's get back on the track and let's start doing this thing. Because we're supposed to run the race to win it. And I want to pray for you and I want to pray for me. Before you're near the cookie jar, before you're walking the palace, before you're standing in the middle looking at that thing. When you're like, you know what? No, I'm cool. I'm cool. A little bit of Jesus is all I need. You're probably aware of the fact that cancer is a really good example. They don't just cut out the little part where cancer was near. They like they gouge around it because they want to be sure that they've gotten it. Because it's that serious. Because a little bit left will go back in and take over again. AIDS is the same. Do you want it just maintainable or do you want to be cured? I want to be cured. But lastly, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying if you've gone to church or you're a church member, there's a lot of church members who don't know Jesus. That should never be you. My Savior died on the cross for you to pay for every one of your sins and mine too. All of your shame, all of your guilt. There was not a single nasty thing within your heart, head, mind, or life. Mine too, that he did not take upon himself by choice and die on the cross to make sure it was paid in full. And then rose again to give you a new life. But could you imagine walking, looking back a year from now and going, remember when we heard this and we took the challenge and we decided we were going to slap on some serious trainers on that track and we, were just going to, we weren't just going to put on flip-flops because we were actually going to try to run and not just be happy we were on the track? Because when we stand before Jesus, you'll never be able to go back and run again. This is the one shot you got. Wouldn't it be cool to actually stand there and hear, well done, because somehow in it, we've convinced ourselves we could live really stupid lives and have God go, well done? That's delusional. Because you, only you know well done for you. I can't tell you what your well done is, but you can. And that's the great thing about running, is you run the best you can run. Well, can I just say, can I challenge you? Run with me. Let's run and really fall in love with this God who's fallen in love with us. And get back to that place where we wake up and go, God, let me explore with you today. Show me new things to jump in and show you your glory in that. Will you pray with me? 
God in heaven, I want to thank you for this text. And no doubt it's been long and arduous. We've gone through three, in essence, we've gone through three Bible studies in a single text. And yet we've been, I'm challenged. I'm challenged to do so much more than just think about more information or seek another spiritual experience. I realize you fill me and empower me to do, to serve. And I don't want to make this about me. I want to make this about you. And I want to make you glorified. I want you to be lifted up and your name to be exalted. And, and I don't want to dishonor you by a lifestyle that is duplicative, that is somehow vacillating between these points of, of stupid and stupider. Where somehow I think that I was doing okay for a moment and then something weird starts to happen. Where I ease up and then I find myself in a place where I'm like, how did I get there? But today you remind me, this is so much more. This is so much more than just getting out of hell. This is a relationship you've ordained for us. And that's my heart for us, is that we would invest in this relationship. We recognize we, we're prone to sway. We're prone to stray because we've not disciplined our appetites to pursue you like we should. And when we don't do that, we find ourselves instead at this place where we wander. And and, and forgive us for that. And I pray for any and every person here that may actually be in that place where they feel like they are far, where they are fallen. I want to just please remind them, just like Peter, that doesn't take you by surprise. You knew that that was going to happen and you had a plan for them on the other side. And that is not for us to cheapen the grace and think we could just do that and get away with it. Because it comes with scars, scars you've never intended for us to have. But please, 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 God, reignite within us a commitment to be careful. Reignite within us a commitment to watch and to, and to want to be in that right place with you and the right heart space and mind space with you. Oh God, please tonight, please here, put us back in that place where the horizon is huge. Put us back in that place, God, where we get serious about our sin. And more than just not wanting to hurt you, that we would desire to live lives that please you. And if there be any who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, but today recognize you need to, you've actually not, maybe you're not even sure. Well, you can be sure. Pray this prayer with me. And it's just a prayer of surrender and acceptance. We surrender our lives to him and we accept his gift on our behalf. And it says, God, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before you in my own merit. But I believe you took all of my guilt. You laid it upon yourself. And you're drawing me back to you. You You created me to be with you. So you paid all my guilt when Jesus died on that cross. And when he rose again, when you raised him, you offer me new life. And that's your offer. Let all this filth die and trade it for a new life. And I say yes. I say yes, confessing Jesus as my Savior, confessing Jesus as my Lord, And I hand my life to you now. Please, make it beautiful. Make me yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.